The Tom Woods Show, episode 1423. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, this episode is brought to you by Policy Genius. No matter how much or how little you know about life insurance, you can find the right policy in minutes at policygenius.com. Hey, everybody, Tom Woods here. You may have heard about a now notorious monologue by Tucker Carlson on Fox News Channel, in which he more or less endorses the economic program of Elizabeth Warren, the Massachusetts senator who's running for president as a Democrat. Well, this sent shockwaves throughout the uh, internet on all sides. It's not terribly surprising to me, given the direction that Carlson's been going in. And I have been the first one to give him credit where it's due. I think he actually has done some very courageous things. For example, he was, I think, virtually alone among cable news commentators in speaking out against the president's strike on Syria. And he was excellent on the Russiagate matter, areas where virtually everybody was wrong. He's been pretty good. He's not good on everything, but you know, I can excuse a lot when you're good on the really major things that everybody else is either deluded or lying about. But on this, well, you know, the, the argument is that traditional conservatives shouldn't be in favor of the market because all it cares about is material things and blah, 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 blah. It's, it's the old traditionalist kind of argument against it. And the thing is, I've already heard those arguments and I'm as traditionalist as they come and I don't buy any of them. So I want to talk about this monologue with a guest and I Ask the folks in my supporting listeners group, and David R. Henderson is our guest for today. David is Emeritus Professor of Economics at the Naval Postgraduate School and a research fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. David, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. You know, I feel like I'm seeing you at a funeral. You know, you see somebody at a funeral and you say, <laughs> I wish we could be meeting under better circumstances. Well, <laughs> likewise, I'm sorry that it has to be the occasion of a Tucker Carlson monologue that we are yes. talking. But I, you know, I, I actually put out a request in my private Facebook group and I said, I need somebody who would do a good job discussing this with me. And Gene Epstein, who's my normal go-to guy, was not available. And somebody <laughs> said, David R. Henderson. And I said, yes, that is the one. So I wrote to you and here we are. So I'm going to- Well, it's nice to be second choice. Uh, I'm sorry, I realized that came out wrong. But <laughs> no, that's fine, that's fine. But I mean, there's, there's no shame in losing out to Gene Epstein, right? Absolutely. So, so I am going to link at tomwoods.com slash 1423 to the video of this monologue so people can listen to it for themselves. But the basic gist of what Tucker Carlson was saying was that, I mean, in fact, he quotes at length from a statement by Elizabeth Warren, but he doesn't reveal her identity. And he basically says, you see how much common sense is in here. If her name weren't, in effect, he's saying if, his na- if her name weren't Elizabeth Warren, you would be listening to this with a great deal of sympathy. And his, his conclusion is basically that if, the, if left liberals could just get rid of some of their social liberalism that he thinks drives away a lot of middle Americans, their economic policy is actually not far from where a lot of Americans really are. So what I want to do is go through some of the claims he makes. But let's actually start right there. I actually think that what he's saying there, even though I wish he hadn't done this monologue because I disagree with it, I think that point is not that far off. I I really do think it's true that America, by and large, is to the left of both parties on on economics. Now, the Democrats are drifting out leftward, so maybe they're meeting them there. But I think they've been 
fairly populist left for a while, but they they shy away from the Democratic Party because they don't want the rest of the baggage. I think there's something to that. Yeah, I think there is too. I think, of course, we have to remember that when people are favoring certain viewpoints, they have no sense of the costs. And I'm going to just mention briefly my co-blogger, Brian Kaplan, who's written a whole book on this about the irrational voter, essentially. And let me just give you a standard question you'll see in, in polling questions. Do you favor Medicare for all? And 60% say yes, let's say. Do you favor Medicare for all if you have to pay an extra $20 a month in taxes and the number will fall by half? Now, I'm making that up. But if I had my library really handy, I could find very similar questions with very similar results. And so, you know, yes, those views are popular. A president who got elected and tried to implement them would be unpopular pretty quickly when the cost became apparent. Right. And so I think I'm hopeful that the kinds of ideas that we're hearing spouted are not going to be victorious. But if they are someday, the extremely tenuous silver lining will be that the consequences should be fairly swift and one hopes people will put two and two together. But, you know, what was it that Mencken said about not going broke, uh, betting on the intelligence of the American public? But anyway, let me give a specific here. This is a quotation from his monologue. He says, she, meaning Elizabeth Warren, says that taxpayers ought to benefit from the research and development they pay for. And yet, she writes, we often see American companies take that research and use it to manufacture products overseas like Apple did with the iPhone. The companies get rich and American taxpayers have subsidized the creation of low-wage foreign jobs. And then Carlson himself says, she sounds like Donald Trump at his best. Well, I'm not sure that's quite Donald Trump's best, but but uh, how do you respond to that, that claim? Well, I think I would respond in two ways. First of all, she sounds like Donald Trump at his worst. Right. And the other thing, though, is let's and, – and I don't know the specific R&D she has in mind that U.S. taxpayers subsidized. I'm sure there was some. I'd be willing to give you 10 to 1 odds that that research on its own would have done nothing. If Apple hadn't then used all of its skills and all of its talents to make something of it, that's that, that point. Also, yes, it, it produces jobs overseas because that's where it's cheaper. And I mean it, lower cost. Wages can be low, but it can be higher cost if productivity is low. So clearly they're, they're, they're having those jobs overseas because it's cheaper. But she left out the huge beneficiary of Apple, which is the customer. So if you look at what people, when they're polled, say they would be willing to pay or what they'd have to be paid to give up an iPhone, it's an order of magnitude higher than what they had to pay to get an iPhone. <laughs> and so we are huge beneficiaries of that. Right, right, right. And it, it actually kind of reminds me of a poll that I guess was done trying to determine how much people would be willing to pay to mitigate uh, climate change, per, mm -hmm. uh, how much they'd be willing to pay per month. Now, these are the same people who yeah. lecture the rest of the world about all the sacrifices they should make. The rich should make this sacrifice and you should make that sacrifice. But when it comes to them and the sacrifices they should be called on to make, people are not willing to pay $10 a month 
for what right. they supposedly think. I mean, this could literally be the end of the world if if they're <laughs> right about it, and they won't even pay ten measly. <laughs> they can't give up two packs of cigarettes per month. <laughs> right. yes. um, right. let, me, let me read a passage. And actually, with the taxes on cigarettes, we're talking one pack. Oh, I know. It shows how little I know about cigarettes. Right. <laughs> right. So here's a here's a little thing. I, again, I'd like to just get your thoughts on it. He says, if there was a Democrat in 2020 in this election who made that primary plank in the platform, I would vote for that person. And so what he's saying is as follows. He says, that's how important I think it is. If Elizabeth Warren came out and said, I wrote a whole book on this and I want our economy to support parents on one income, families on one income, not so we can hire some person from the third world to work at minimum wage and raise your kids, but so that you can have an intact family. You can live in a way that we all know is better. In rich neighborhoods in America, there's a parent raising those kids overwhelmingly. This is Carlson. I live in one, so I know. There's a parent raising those kids. Why shouldn't everybody have that chance? If she ran you know what on this that, sounds like? I'm what? Sorry. No, no. Oh, this just, sounds what? like AOC. I, it totally does. Hang on just once. I'm almost done. I, yeah, said, sorry. He, sorry. Okay, sorry. Uh, I, I can't. I want to make comments too. He says, uh, <laughs> if she ran on that, I would vote for Elizabeth Warren. I wanted to make sure and say that. And I would say so in public. That's what I'm calling for. And I don't care who provides it. Why would I? Yeah. Yeah. So your thoughts on that? Well, it's just made up. In other words, who wouldn't want everyone to be roughly five times as wealthy as they are? What's that have to do with anything? (laughs) How do you get there? And you don't get there by paying more for things rather than paying less for things. So what Tucker misses, and you see it when he talks about trade, even before he talked about Elizabeth Warren, is he misses the basic economics of trade. Things that economists talk about, like comparative advantage, and you and Bob Murphy, your, your bet noir, Paul Krugman, <laughs> just wrote a beautiful piece in this about 20 years ago called Ricardo's Difficult Idea. And Ricardo's difficult idea is comparative advantage. And he pointed out there are all these intellectuals run into at cocktail parties who won't take 15 minutes to look at a simple numerical example showing that both sides are better off when people in various countries work in what their comparative advantage is. And the fact that Apple has some of this uh, assembly done in China means that that's not our comparative advantage. I understand people who long for a family arrangement whereby people, if they so choose, can have the one parent at home, let's say raising the children, and the other parent works. That's a great setup for a lot of people, and, and I think it can have very good effects. But as you say, simply to say that that's a desirable thing is not the end of the discussion. Because right. the question would then be, what policies create the wealth that would be necessary to allow for that? I mean. It's true that in the 1950s, you did often see that set up. But what we right. also note is I can – I always – my listeners are tired of hearing me say this, but I'm a big fan of The Honeymooners, that old show from the 50s. Right. And right. if you look at – now, we all know Ralph Cramden was a cheapskate, but all the same, <laughs> even with that, it was not implausible that in the 1950s, you would have an ice box instead of a refrigerator. You would have no telephone. They had to borrow, they would have to lower the Norton's phone into their window to speak on the phone. They had no television. They might have had a radio. I, I, I don't remember. They might have had a radio, but they had the most primitive furniture. They, they lived in a two room apartment. They had nothing. So, yeah, right. Alice stayed home all day. And if you want to live at that standard of living, you can have that right now with no problem. It's precisely that people don't want to have the standard of living at that time that they don't choose to do this. 
That's right. And I'll give my own example. We did have our own phone. We did have our own TV and radio, although we were the last family in town to get TV. We got it in 1961. But we had one bathroom. Now, there was a time when there were three teenagers in that household. Can you imagine? And guess which one took most of the time? My sister. You know, so those kinds of things. And, and the houses were just primitive compared to now. Now, it could be said in response, though, I can hear what I think is a somewhat legitimate objection, and that is that because of government involvement in sectors of the economy that are very, very important to people, namely health care and education, and not to mention right. housing, but health care and education, those costs have gone up so much. And you don't even have to blame the free market for that. Um, you could be a right. free market person who just says the government has helped to inflate these costs that now – it actually is trickier for people to live with the, the one-parent household. But if, even if that critique were correct, what would you say would be the appropriate response? Allow more housing so the price comes down. Get the government out of schools or at least get them, you know, move in the direction of getting them out of schools. Allow more free markets in health care. Allow people to buy catastrophic health insurance rather than buy full coverage. You know, those are the kinds I would, kind of things I would say. But also I would say, even with those things, if you put, take all of the budget people put into those things, and you're not talking about San Francisco, where housing is just crazy, you're talking about most of the country, the amount of money they have left would buy everything those people had in the 1950s that you talked about, plus. That's... That's more or less what I've been trying to say, but I, I don't have the <laughs> I don't have quite the audience of Tucker Carlson. Um, let's see what on these on this other list of things. Yeah, now he says he, he says that real wages have stagnated over the course of you know however many years. Some people say since 1970. The thing is, I've seen charts that seem to indicate that real wages have stagnated. And then I talk to other economists who say, well, that leaves out fringe benefits, or it leaves out this or that, or it leaves out. Um, What's always awkward to to include hedonic adjustments because the fact is I would not want to live in 1974 even if I did get a higher, let's say, salary. Uh, I wouldn't want to live in 1974. I wouldn't want to live with no internet, with an exploding car, uh, you know, with, with no air conditioning in the car, with, you know, with typing yeah. on a computer instead of a word processor. I wouldn't want any of that. Yeah. Yeah. And so what you mentioned fringe benefits, and that's a that's a really good critique of that claim. What you're getting at with your other part is is whether the consumer price index adequately accounts for improvements in quality and for new products. And the bottom line is it doesn't. And so one of my colleagues at the Hoover Institution, uh, Mike Boskin, had this committee he headed for the U.S. Senate back in the mid 90s that estimated that even after the Bureau of Labor Statistics took some of their advice that the CPI overstates inflation by eight-tenths to one percentage point a year. Now, that's eight-tenths to one percentage point. So over 20 years, that compounds to a lot. And so, yeah, it, people really are better off. And again, you have to just look at, well, would you be willing to go without all those things, all those improvements, and get what you could get back then? Don Boudreau at Cafe Hayek has done this great thing looking at a Sears catalog in the 1970s versus what you can buy now, and you are so much better off now. I'm quite sure that's true, and I would actually love to look at that. I can already hear the response, though. It's 
there's this sneering contempt from <laughs> some people, particularly not just on the left, more really among traditional conservatives, you know, who, yeah, who sniff yeah. that you, you don't understand the real meaning of life if all you're worried about is air conditioning or whatever. You know, they give us these lectures about uh, materialism and stuff uh, even at, at, from their air-conditioned offices, of course. <laughs> but I hear this a lot, that as soon as you talk about the fact that we have a, a wider variety of goods available to us, they think, oh, you stupid libertarians. Don't you understand the meaning of life? How, I'm sure you've come across these people. How do you answer them? I answer them by saying you just changed the rules in mid in midstream. Right. You were the ones who talked about real wages stagnating. What are you <laughs> right, saying? Right. You're saying real wages won't buy more than they used to. I'm saying they do. That's a factual issue. So don't suddenly say you weren't worried about that when you were the one who raised the concern. And particularly, I get this critique, again, from traditionalists, that uh, libertarians are materialistic because they focus so much on material goods. But these are the same people who say that free markets are screwing over workers. Well, by what criterion do you say they're screwing over workers? Because workers can't get enough, wait for it, material goods? I mean, so, <laughs> right. you know, so these right. people are just as so-called material. And it's not even materialistic to just to say if your belly is full – and, you know, you get a roof over your head, you're in a much better position to, you know, indulge in intellectual or spiritual or aesthetic pursuits than you would be as a 14th century peasant in France. Right. That's right. All right. Yeah. And, and by the way, I mean, you're a very, I know you enough and I know your work well enough to know that you don't favor free markets primarily because they produce the goods. You favor them, I think, certainly the reason I do, because people are free. Right. That's the goal. And yet, look how far we get talking about that issue with those same people who accuse us of being materialists. Oh, well, it's easy for you to say that, you know, material things don't matter and freedom is all that matters. But wait a minute. You were the one who was saying that I was claiming material things were the only thing. And so it, it is the number of debates you get into where people keep changing the rules in mid-debate is well over half the debates you get into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's actually good advice to debaters is keep an eye on the – keep your eye on the ball and yeah. force your opponent to keep your you know uh, that person's eye on the ball. Yeah, exactly. All right. I thought in particular, this is just a side note, but he describes, I guess, the so-called right wing on the Hill as being, quote, resolutely libertarian. <laughs> ah, if only, right? If only. <laughs> I don't know what yeah. world that's that's from. He ends the monologue by quoting Mitch McConnell saying, we're not fans of tariffs, you know, hoping that they could somehow head off the some of these Trump tariffs on Mexico, I think. And, yes. and Carlson's response is just, to, in effect, to sneer that this just goes to show how totally out of touch these people are. How could you make a remark like that when there are real people who are seeing real jobs siphoned off by, uh, by free trade? And so I guess I'd like to know, let's say you're in a debate situation – Maybe you're on television, or no, television, they'd never give you a two-minute response. What, what a glorious thing to luxuriate in that would be. But let's suppose it's a, it's a bizarre show. You get two minutes of response. How would you reach somebody who honestly thinks that what's been happening is we started off back when we had strong labor unions, right? This is their, this is their argument. We had top marginal tax rates that were very high. We had strong labor unions, and we had, as a result, they think as a result, we had prosperity, we had 
households with one person working, one person taking care of the kids, whereas now we've had deregulation, laissez-faire, free trade, and a lot of outsourcing by companies that care nothing about Americans, and the results are all around you. There's tremendous, uh, that people feel like their jobs are very precarious, there's a lot of anxiety out there in the labor force. Is there any truth to that picture at all? Because that's the picture that's painted for us all the time. Is there any truth to that whatsoever? And if not, what's the problem with it? Well, once you say, is there any truth, <laughs> I'm probably going to say yes, right? Sure. Because there's there's a little bit, uh, but but okay, but let's look at the precariousness of the jobs. There was precariousness back then. We had the 1958 recession during these golden years where unemployment hit, I think, 10%. And look at on look at the unemployment now, which is just a little under four percent. And you, I've, I don't know if you've noticed this in retail, Tom, but you go into a store and you get someone who's really incompetent dealing with you lately. And on the one hand, you feel bad about that. On the other hand, as an economist, I say, isn't this great? Someone who's really pretty incompetent, even that person can get a job now. <laughs> right. And, and so just. It, Right now, jobs are not very precarious, except for the employers. They're having trouble keeping people. So that's that's just one thing. But if I were to, to respond to the other stuff, it would be to say, again, look at the things we get. Look at all the things we have. And and we, we did have I – I looked at the data. We had 3.2% real growth of GDP in the 60s, in the 70s, which surprises people, in the 80s, and in the 90s. <laughs> it averaged 3.2% through that whole time. So the growth rate really was not much affected. And as far as those high marginal tax rates, they did hit 91%. They were 91% through most of the 50s and the first few years of the 60s. But almost no one was paying them because they kicked in at a very high real income and people figured out ways around them. And so Elizabeth Warren and others want to tax people at 70, 80 percent, but they want it to kick in for a large slice of population. And so that'd be a very different situation. He says at one point that he's citing Elizabeth Warren again. He's citing her as advocating workplace apprenticeship programs on the grounds that four year colleges are not right for everyone. And so he says, I agree with that. Okay, well, I agree with that, too. But right. But. Okay, who's responsible for the fact that no one thinks this way, that everybody thinks you have to go to a four-year college? I mean, it's it's a, just a cultural expectation. There have been a lot of us calling for this. And there are uh, programs like this that if, you know, if only there weren't this enormous cultural bias in the direction of four-year colleges, there's a great program you may know about called Praxis that has placed a lot of people in, in right. high-paying jobs um, and, and spared them years of, of, of accumulating debt. The, those things are out there, and I do favor those. And in fact, I even go farther than that. Uh, not only four-year colleges aren't right for everyone, but the traditional curriculum of K through 12 is not right for everyone. No, that's right. That's true. Yeah. And my again, my colleague Brian Kaplan has written a whole book on that about you know the case against education, which really should be titled The Case Against Schooling. But imagine, here's what would happen if you just said the school leaving age, the, the age after which you can't be, you know, you, you, you're not coerced by law to be in school, if if their various state governments made that age 14 instead of 18, 
you'd see a lot of, and if they relaxed the minimum wage law, you'd see a lot of apprenticeships. They wouldn't be formal things necessarily. They would be a guy hiring a 14 or 15 year old to work in his construction site. And he'd be making $3 an hour for the first few months and then $6 an hour and so on. And I just think you'd have a tremendous boost in productivity. You would have a lot of teenagers being a lot happier and and it, you know, we would get some of those things. But the way to do it is not from the top down and have the government say, ooh, let's subsidize, uh, let's subsidize apprenticeships. They're, they're going to be acting like central planners. They don't have the right incentives. They don't have the right information. They would just waste a whole lot of money and a whole lot of young people's time. Folks, before we go on, just a quick note here. Sometimes we reproach ourselves for procrastinating, but if you have been procrastinating about an extremely important decision that I have practically begged you to make, namely getting life insurance to provide for your family if the unthinkable should happen, well, you've procrastinated just long enough for technology to make the whole process really simple. PolicyGenius.com is the easy way to shop for insurance online because in just two minutes, you can be comparing quotes from top insurers and finding your best price. And then once you apply, the PolicyGenius team handles all the paperwork and the red tape. There's no sales pressure, no hidden fees, just financial protection and peace of mind. And they don't make just life insurance easy. They can also help you find the right home insurance, auto insurance, and disability insurance. So if you need life insurance, and chances are you do, but you've been busy doing, well, pretty much anything else, check out Policy Genius. It's the easy way to compare all the top insurers and find the best value for you. PolicyGenius.com. Nobody wants to shop for life insurance. That's why they made it easy. All right, so now let's suppose instead of Tucker Carlson tonight, it's David R. Henderson tonight, the, the show we would all tune in for. And you're giving a, a monologue, and it's not, let's say, in favor of Elizabeth Warren's plan. What would be the central points that you think Americans most need to hear right now, given all the misinformation they get about the economy? Wow. Okay. So the main thing I would say is that free markets are going to be the thing you're, you should rely on. They're the ones that always come through. They don't necessarily respond to the headlines. They respond to what people really want and really need. And you're going to be better off with free markets. I would say that if you're worried about poverty, which is one of the things that sometimes Elizabeth Warren talks about, you don't understand poverty if you're looking at American poverty. Look at poverty in Bangladesh. Look at poverty in Pakistan. And let's start allowing more of those people in. It'll get them out of poverty. And then you will have... Uh, people who can take care of your kids. That won't be what Carlson wants, but so what? You'll have what those parents want, which is the woman can go out and get a job and she can pay someone three or $4 an hour who's going to be delighted to take care of her kids. Uh, so there's, so those are some of the things I'd say. I'd say let's get rid of the drug war because that's putting a lot of people in prison that who shouldn't be in prison. So there's just a whole lot of moves we could make that are somewhere near the Overton window that would make things a lot better. Oh, that's good. That's good. Because uh, I sometimes wonder if I had that opportunity, you know, let's say I had 10 minutes to talk to the whole country. Would I try to nudge them toward what they're already prepared to hear, but that would 
you know, would, would result in some good improvements or would I just blow their minds, you know, by, <laughs> by, you know, pushing that Overton window way, way out there. And yeah. it depends on what day of the week it is, how I feel about which approach I would take. But, but yeah, no, that's right. That's yeah. right. By the way, I have a t-shirt idea. We've seen the Overton window really work for marijuana now. So my t-shirt idea is to have a t-shirt that says on it, re-legalize cocaine. Oh. Because it was legal, but if you say re-legalize, people can start talking. You mean it was legal? Yeah, it was legal. That's you know? smart. And so that's that's my next Overton window on, on the drug war. That's smart. All right, everybody. <laughs> I, I, my feeling is that my, – my sense is that David R. Henderson is not big into p- making print-on-demand products, so you could probably steal that idea from him <laughs> right under his Please nose do. Please <laughs> if do. you wanted to. <laughs> okay. Do you still um, maintain uh, uh, davidrhenderson.com? Where can we send people if they want more of your stuff? Okay. I'm really bad at that. DavidRHenderson.com is up there and hasn't been revised in about three years. But I do blog at EconLog, and I do 20 20 to 25 blog posts a month. And for some reason, if you do a Google on EconLog, you don't get driven there. So do a Google on EconLib.org, and then you'll find EconLog. Okay. And then do you have some kind of an archive there? Or do we just? Yes. Okay. All right. So I'll link yeah. to that too. So people can check out your stuff. Tomwoods.com slash 1423 will be where I'll put that. Well, thanks for doing this on such short notice. I wanted to talk thanks, about Tom. this before it became old news, you know, and boy, yeah. the same day I asked you, here you are doing it. <laughs> thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. All right, folks, as we wrap up for the weekend, I'd like to let you know about a podcast and blog run by a couple of listeners of this show, one of whom is an Iraq war veteran now turned peacemonger ANCAP, and it's called The Statist Quo. You can check it out at thestatistquo.net. As I say, it's a podcast and a blog, and you will find a great many episodes dealing with war and foreign policy, but also the drug war and other topics as well, but definitely with a foreign policy emphasis for obvious reasons. So you'll want to check that out over at thestatistquo.net. I'll link to that at tomwoods.com slash 1423. And you can get nice publicity like this for the blog or website you are dreaming of creating simply by going to tomwoods.com slash publicity before you start it up. Get your hosting through me and you'll get publicity plus membership in my bloggers group and other really great benefits that will give you some nice traffic as you start your career on the information superhighway. I'll see you next week. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of the Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.